Good morning, everyone. I'm going to ask you to uh, hang with me here because this is the entire chapter of Nehemiah, chapter 5, verses 1 through 19. And I'm just going to be real with you. You don't think radio professionals ever get a case of nerves? <clears throat> yes, I, I do once in a while. And this is one of those times. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending their money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. 
This is the word of the Lord. In chapter 4 of Nehemiah, we actually saw trouble from outside the city. It was Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, who were trying to cause harm, to bring a war against Israel, who were rebuilding the walls. In chapter 6, next week, we're going to learn that there's more trouble coming from outside the city. But chapter 5 is not, has nothing to do with what's outside. It has to do with the trouble that's being stirred inside the city walls among the Jews. And so this message just focuses us today that this chapter is all about conflict within the church, conflict within the Jewish people. That's what we see. A man's daughter was in the backyard with her little friends on a Saturday morning, and she was playing with them, and all of a sudden, he noticed inside the house that things were getting a little loud and a little forceful. And so he walked out back, and he went to settle them down, and his daughter quickly explained, but Daddy, we were just playing church. That hurts. It's very true that God's church oftentimes has been marked more by faction than by fellowship. J. Vernon McGee, a great preacher, once said, when the devil could not destroy the church by persecution, the next thing he did was join it. It's sad but true that if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you have experienced to some degree conflict and division among God's people. Even at Virile Bible Fellowship, that stuff will show its ugly head. Because we're a church. And all the way back to the epistles written by Paul, we find that this problem existed, and it exists today. It's actually encouraging to know that church conflict has always been around, because if you never had conflict, that would be a true indicator that Satan doesn't have a real concern about your church. The church is made up of people who have been called out of darkness and into the light of Christ. Problem is... We're all still, still very capable, capable of sinning, and we do sin because we're clothed in flesh and we're clothed in blood. We're imperfect people. And that is the people that God called to himself, an imperfect people. Now, I don't mean that to say that your salvation was not holy and without blemish. When you became a Christian, you were transformed by the, by, the, by, the, uh, by the Holy Spirit. You were imparted the righteousness of Christ. You were clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So even though you are flesh and blood capable of sin and do sin, but from God's view, spiritually speaking, you've been clothed in righteousness. You're holy. Where, that ought to get you excited. Where's the amen on that? That's the church, holy, beautiful. Jesus isn't returning for a prostitute. He's coming back for a beautiful bride. Doesn't mean that the bride can't sin. Doesn't mean that the bride is be above sin. It means that the bride's heart is bent towards loving, serving, obeying, following God. That's the church. 
That's the church that Jesus is going to return for one day. So we shouldn't be surprised when we see evidence of these factions that start up in the church. In fact, truth be known, you've contributed to the factions from time to time. We all have at some point or another, sometimes not knowing, but we were part of it. We didn't take time to get the whole truth. We only heard one side of a story, and we formed an opinion. Has anybody ever been there? Raise a hand, honestly. Boy, a lot of liars in this room. Boy, we're going to have to pray. Sometimes you don't know when you're contributing to something that's, that's bringing disunity to the body of Christ. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. That's why we have the Word of God. It corrects us. It's, it, it, it puts us back in alignment with God. So that when we find that we were part of something that wasn't holy, we're able to say, Lord, forgive me. And go to the people and say, forgive me for not coming and getting the other side of the story. Forgive me for that. That's, that's all that God requires. See, that's the beauty of the church. Imperfect people who are going to mess up, but yet we have God and we have the Word and we have the Holy Spirit who will guide us into deeper relationships. It's easy when things go a little bit weird to walk away from God's family. That's easy. Anybody can do that. People in this world do that every day. I used to shop at Target. Uh, I didn't. But some of, I'm just, this is, you know, facetious. I used to shop at Target, but I didn't like the way they, now I shop at Walmart. But you pick and choose, and you make decisions. What restaurant do you like? Did you have a bad meal there one time? Well, let's go somewhere else. It's easy to do. But in church, you belong to the family of God. There's supposed to be a commitment. And when I come into an issue or a problem, I'm going to take that to the right people and get the answers because this is my family. This is not just a group of people I hang out with on Sunday. This is my, my spiritual family. Amen? So we shouldn't be surprised when trouble arises. God's going to use it to grow us, to mature us, if we're willing. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, if you want to write it down, 2 Peter 2, 1 through, through 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Verse 2, and many will follow their sensuality, those who tell a story well, it just draws you in. Forget about whether all the truth is in the story. I'm just drawn by the way they're presenting it. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. You know, when, when we only get half-truths, let me tell you what suffers. Real truth. What wins? Man's opinion. Now, when should man's opinion ever transcend the truth of God. Never. But that's what happens. Verse 3, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. The elders of God's church are charged with refuting these false teachers and these false doctrines and removing those who would cause confusion and division 
among God's people. When the elders carry out that mandate of God lovingly, it's simply for the protection of the church. And it never, there's never a time of church discipline, which is biblical, but there should never be a time where church discipline takes place that lacks love, that, that the purpose behind it, the outcome of it, is to restore and reconcile everyone involved. Never should be a time that there's church discipline for the purpose of throwing somebody on the scrap heap. That is not the heart of God. Our God is a redeeming God. Amen? Yet God doesn't overlook sin. He doesn't wink at gossip. And so we should handle things in a biblical manner. No matter what the cause of the disunity, we are exhorted in Scripture to aggressively pursue peace. Paul exhorted the church to be, quote, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why? Because he also said there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We are to be one in Christ. Amen? That's the, that's the end goal. To be one, not to separate and cast people off, but to bring everybody back into oneness. We're to be soul brothers and soul sisters. Our souls are entwined through Christ. Again, in Romans 14, 19, Paul says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Psalm 34, 12, the Old Testament, it speaks the same. Listen to this. What man is there who desire, or woman, who desires life and loves many days, that he may see good? Is that why you desire life in many days, that you may see good? Of course, and yeah, that's what I want. Good. Well, here's the answer. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it so powerful there are peace keepers and there are peace makers god's word calls us to be peace makers not peace keepers a peacekeeper says, oh, I sense something's not right. Oh, just everybody get along. Let's just tell a, tell a joke. Tell a joke. Do something. Let's, let's settle everybody. That's peacekeeping. You just, you don't want to feel uncomfortable. It's selfish. Peacemaking will cost you something. There's, there's not peace in this place. Father, what are we to do to bring peace? Use me as an instrument to help bring peace. Even if some look down upon me, it's okay. I want you, Father, to win, not me. See the difference? Peace isn't something that happens passively. We have to intentionally pursue peace. Now, in chapter 3 of Nehemiah, you probably thought, where are you going? Because Nehemiah is not about the church. And you're right. The book of Nehemiah is not a model of church. It's just that Nehemiah chapter 5 is filled with biblical principle that relates or translates well into the church. So let's take a look at this. In Nehemiah, again, chapter 3, 
Looks like everything's going smoothly. The walls are going up. Chapter 4, trouble hits from outside. And chapter 5, there's trouble from within. And chapter 6, we're going to go back to more outside trouble. So I just gave you the outline of, the, of 3 through 6. And so in chapter 5, though, that's our focus for today, we learn about a conflict that happened from within. I want you to get the picture. Here they are in the middle of building this great wall for God, that God, is, God has led them to come return to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of the city so that the city's protected. They might worship God without any kind of interference, and, and, and they have a sense of peace again. And in the midst of this, they have to pause. Why? Because inside the city, there's a disruption. There's a conflict that's come up. And so the chapter 5 lays out just how they're doing the work of the Lord, but even in doing the work of the Lord, things don't always go smoothly. They run into trouble doing the work of the Lord. And that can happen in your life as well. How many of you have been serving the Lord in the midst of serving the Lord? Some nasty stuff shows up. Amen? You ever been there? Yeah, we all have. And so that, that's really what we're talking about today. The problem that verses 1 through 5 identify is that some of the poor Jews are either being ignored or worse, being taken advantage of by some of the wealthier Jews. What brought all of this contention on was a famine. And the famine really stretched the dollar of the people. And it was so bad that some of the folks were mortgaging their homes and their properties just to put food on the table. That's how difficult the economics were in that day. They also had the king's tax, the king of Persia. They had the king's tax that they had to pay on top of that. And so these nobles and these officials, these more wealthy, well-known, you know, popular Jewish leaders, they had made the loans to the poor people. And they took, their, they, they, they took out uh, carried paper for the people, but they didn't just charge principal, it was interest as well. And this created a problem. The problem is the Mosaic law clearly states that a Jew is never to charge tax or exact tax from another Jew. God put that in play. God had some really interesting uh, principles and policy when, when, when Israel was ruled by God. Very interesting. You know what he did with the poor? He said, if you're poor and you're traveling and you come through a, 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 a city, uh, the, the poor are allowed to glean the edges of the field. When you own a field and you're harvesting your crop, leave the corners. Don't, don't take the corners. In some cases, only glean, only go through and harvest one time. Don't come back later when there's more growth. Leave it. Why? So that the sojourners, so that the poor, so that those without might walk onto your land and they might be able to gather what they need. Now, interesting, in God's, uh, in God's plan, uh, if you're poor, there's a way to get what you need, the food, but you have to go get it. It's not just handed to you. It's a hand up. That's God's system. We didn't come up with that. God did. And so, so this is really cool to me. So what, what, what's going on is the people, the poor people especially, and by the way, not only were they being exacted of tax, but if they couldn't pay back on time to the nobles and the officials and the wealthy Jews in the city, then their children 
were taken into labor. They were slaves to the owners of, of the loan, and they had to repay the loan. Now, it's not slavery in the sense that we might think today, but it was because it was, it was allowed to happen. I mean, it was part of the law that they would take people and you'd pay off your loan. Remember the story in, in uh, uh, first King, or Second Kings when the widow, her husband was one of the young prophets under uh, Joshua or under uh, Elisha, and he died and he had debts and he couldn't, she couldn't pay his debts off. So the, the, the owners of the debts came and said, we, we'll take your two sons. They can pay them off. This would have left her alone with nothing. And God provided a miracle through the oil that kept flowing. And she was able to pay off all the debts. And her sons were able to say, oh, that, that, that's, that's common in Israel. But here now, they just returned. These people have been in exile for 70 years, some of them. And they come home, and now they're doing a good thing. They're rebuilding the walls for the city, that all the people who live in the city might be protected, including the wealthy. But the wealthy are exacting this tax, and now they're putting their children to work. It's just an upheaval. In the middle of a time when they ought to be working together, all of a sudden, the enemy comes up. See, the enemy in the church doesn't pick sides. He likes to give a little bit to both sides to keep them at each other. And that's what's going on here. And so we have a story of how God uses Nehemiah, an ordinary man, but who had extraordinary gifts from God. Everybody in this room has gifts from God. Everybody has at least a gift. And that gift is not natural. I'm not talking about abilities. I'm not talking about skills. I'm talking about a gifting. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. God just gave it to you, and it's supernatural. I mean, it was given by the Holy Spirit to you. Everybody here has that. The problem is a lot of us, we use that gifting that we have for the world in our job. We use it for our own income, for our own family. But are we using that gift for the kingdom of God? Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. He comes home to build the walls because God called him to do that. This is God's plan. God's, God's, God's behind the whole thing. God has equipped Nehemiah, gifted him with the leadership to pull it off. And that's where we're going to look here for just a few moments, okay? Let me give you three principles. Two apply to people and one applies to leaders in the church. Okay, first... When an issue arises in the church, we need to take that issue to the right people. Because in our story of the Jews, that's exactly what happens. Those who were being exploited went directly to the rich nobles and officials who were profiting at their expense. However, the nobles and the, the wealthy did not want to hear it. They didn't show mercy to the poor. So then the conflict somehow made its way to Nehemiah. We don't know exactly how. I want to think that somehow some of the poor were able to get the word to Nehemiah, that they had tried to go to those who were exacting the tax and taking their children, and, 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 uh, and Nehemiah heard about it. And when he heard about it, Nehemiah got involved. But I want to stay here at the first point for just a second. This is always the first step when there's a conflict, when there's an issue that comes up and you see it. Listen, church, please, let's follow God's word as we live out his family. Amen? This is his family, not ours. Okay? Here, here it is. The first step is always go to the person with whom you have 
the problem. Don't go to other people. You know what that is? That's gossip. The Bible speaks really strongly against gossip. Go to the person. Let me tell you why you, why, another reason why you should go to the person and not to others. Because when you go to others, you now triangulate. You create these little pockets, triangles of people who have all information, and none of them come together. It just stirs up the hornet's nest. And that's what happened here. They, they went to the right source. They, they did the right thing. And those guys didn't hear them. They didn't have mercy on them. Shame on leaders who are made aware of problems and do nothing about it. That's just wrong. Back in that day it was wrong. It's wrong today. Number two, leaders should deal with conflict in a biblical manner. I want to spend most of our time the next few minutes on this particular point, the second point. The third point will be very short at the close. The second point, leaders should deal with conflict in a biblical manner. See, Nehemiah is an example of godly leadership. He could have told these people, I'm so busy working on the wall, and you should be busy too. We don't have time to mess around with all this other stuff. That's not his approach. He realized that the problems were significant. People were hurting. They couldn't afford to put food on their table. Now their children are being affected by it. Now they're paying taxes that the Bible clearly instructed them in the Old Testament not to pay. And then they're paying a tax to the king, which they are to pay. And it's a mess. But Nehemiah realizes all of that. And he sees that the people are upset. He sees that it's going to break down the unity inside the walls. And so it interrupts his attention of working on the wall. He turns away from the project and he focuses on the people. In the church of Jesus Christ, the most important commodity is people. <laughs> the church is about the family of God. And yes, there are projects that God will give us to be a church, to meet at a school, to work out the details for being able to be here, to purchase a property, to take that property and develop it. Those are projects, and God's in projects, never at the expense of meeting people's needs and issues. Nehemiah is a good leader. Let me give you several points under that second point of leaders should deal with conflict in a biblical manner. Let's walk through the verses, verse 6. So here's the point in verse 6. Nehemiah got righteously angry. It may surprise some to read in verse 6 that Nehemiah got very angry when he heard about these complaints. There seems to be two extremes in Christian circles today. Some think that all anger is wrong. And sometimes Christians who think this deny their own anger even though they live in it all the time. Others buying into the modern psychology, the social sciences say that anger isn't wrong or right, it just is. They say that you should express it and own up to it. And you know what happens when you do that? A lot of times you leave carnage in people's lives. The Bible clearly teaches that most anger is sinful. It's sinful, but that some anger is righteous, some. 
Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Don't let your anger stay in you for long because it will corrupt you. And don't let the enemy feed your anger. Know the difference between uh, righteous anger and all other anger. See, Jesus got angry and he hardened up against the Pharisees in Mark 3, 5. But he did not sin, the Scripture says. So it was truly a righteous anger. If our anger is directed against the sinful treatment of others, and if we allow it to move us toward constructive means uh, to try to resolve the problem, it may be a righteous anger. And that's a good thing. If it involves some wrong committed against us, it may start out righteous, but I guarantee you before it's over with, pride will rise up and stick its ugly head in that thing, and all of a sudden you'll find that your motives are wrong. It started out as righteous. See, it's better to be, have righteous anger for things you see and, that are happening around you, not in you, because oftentimes we end up practicing sin in the midst of all that. Selfishness and pride are just crouching at the door waiting to come in. But right anger would be uh, such practices as child abuse, pornography, abortion, racism, mistreatment of women, the sexual revolution that we see. These are reasons to have a righteous anger. It would be sinful to respond uh, to those things, though, with violence. That's not, that's not righteous. That's not the answer for us. We need to check ourselves to make sure that we direct our righteous anger in a righteous way. That's what Nehemiah did. Number two, he exercised self-control. Before Nehemiah contended with the ones guilty of exploiting the poor, he consulted, look at this, with himself. Look at verse 7. I was very angry when I heard their outcry. That's the righteous anger. And these, and these words. Verse 7. I took counsel with myself. Do not underestimate the power in that little sentence. He didn't go off in a rage to blast through who were, those who were wrong. He stopped. He cooled off. He gathered his thoughts. He prayed. He prayed through the issue so that his anger would not become unrighteous. Proverbs 16.32 says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. We all, especially leaders, need to exercise self-control when we think we're walking in righteous anger. Because if we don't, it can go unrighteous real quick. Does this make sense? Amen? Let me give you a third point. He followed the principles of biblical confrontation. It's easy to get angry, but to, then to cool off and do nothing. That's, the, that's what happens is I'm really angry for a moment, but then I forget about it. Or, man, I don't want to get involved in that. And then I back off. Well, that's sinful too. That's not what Nehemiah does. He confronts it lovingly, biblically. It's easy, especially difficult to confront those who happen to be rich or powerful, as these men were in this text. What if they got defensive and withdrew their support of the project? That'd be a major downfall. 
What if they began to view Nehemiah as an enemy? They could use their clout to cause a lot more damage. Nehemiah took the right steps. He lovingly approached these wealthy people, and he spoke truth to them. And he used the Bible to back up what he was saying. So that if they, if they tried to retort, if they tried to excuse themselves, they would have to take that to God. Because Nehemiah stood on the truth of the word. He was simply hiding behind the word of God. Look what he does. Let's look at this. Verse 7. First, he privately confronted those guilty of mistreating the poor. And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. Now, we don't know if that was a single meeting or if it was more than one meeting, but we do know it was private. It was just to them. And the reason we know that is because in just a moment, he's going to address the whole assembly with the problem. But they didn't start there. Okay, Matthew 18, verse, write it down, Matthew 18, verse 15, and the first part of verse 16. Matthew 18, 15, and 16a. If your brother sins... Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. That's the step, folks. That's what you do. You don't take it to other people. You go straight to the source of the issue. And you sit with him privately, not in front of people. You don't confront somebody in front of a crowd. That is unbiblical. That is fleshly. That is sinful. What you do is you privately... Go to the person. Why? Because I'm not trying to embarrass them, and I'm not trying to belittle them. I'm trying to get answers so that we might reconcile. You see the difference? But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. So take somebody with you who knows what they said that you're confronting them about. If they don't listen to that person, then take them to the church. Now it's a more public display of reconciliation. When, while Nehemiah did not have our Lord's teaching on this, he seems to have followed biblical patterns that are found throughout the Old Testament. Did he succeed when he went to them privately? He Listen, look what it says. We really don't know for sure. Probably not. You say, why? Because he had to go public with it. If he had succeeded privately, they wouldn't have gone public. But they, I don't think he had success. So what does he do? He calls this great assembly in verse 8, and he spells out the problem. He, he, doesn't try to, he doesn't try to give his take on it, his opinion. He simply spells out what the problem is. Clearly, he's sharing truth with the, the assembly by pointing out how he and others had redeemed their Jewish brothers who had been sold to the nations, but now it was Jews themselves who were selling their brothers into slavery. And when he said that, nobody said anything. They're like, hmm, he makes a good point. He also stated that the behavior that they, were, that they were showing was not good in that the enemy would pick up on their behavior and see that we're now not one. They'll see it as a weakness and they'll attack. Then he challenges them in verse 10 to leave off the tax in their loans. He asked them to give back to the poor their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, along with the interest that they had charged. There, there are many Christian leaders who are afraid to confront sinners with their sin, whether in private or in public. you got to do it. 
You've got to do it. If you're the leader of your home, you've got to do it. If you're the leader of a Christian organization, you've got to do it. If you're a leader in the church, maybe you're, you, you're a leader of one of the ministries of the church, and there's an issue within that ministry. Somebody in the ministry is spreading some gossip or rumor. You've got to go to them privately. You've you got to do it in hopes that they will repent and they'll get right. And if they don't, then you take it to some, bring somebody along with you that also knows what they said or what they did. If they don't receive that, then bring them before the elders. This is what we have to do. Nehemiah, this is exactly what he does. Now, number four, he also set a personal example of godliness. I love this. Okay, so Nehemiah shows us that leaders must be above reproach. He proves it by the example to the flock. Peter, 1 Peter 5.1, listen to what Peter said. He said, so I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Be an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory for doing it the right way. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble." Nehemiah had spent his own money to redeem the fellow Jews from slavery. He got them home, and now all of a sudden he finds out that the Jews are still bringing them into slavery. He's like, that's not right. And Nehemiah practices for the rest of this chapter. We see how Nehemiah handles himself regarding issues. He, he personally says to these who are charging people, he said, release them from that. Now, some of us have made loans to them because they were in a tight place, but let's release them from it, even including himself, so he doesn't look like he's distant or he's not part of the leadership. He's saying, no, we as leaders, let's, let's release. Let's, let's do the right thing here for the people. And you know what happens? They all said, yes, let's do it. They literally, all those who were holding mortgages and for property and, and fields, they gave them all back. They gave back the vineyards. They gave back all the resources that the people could take and pay off their debts. They, they, they just gave it back. Isn't that wonderful? That, that's the church. That's the beauty of God's church. While we're these people that are, that are not perfect, but when we line up with the Spirit of God, believe me, supernatural things happen. We start acting not like humans. We start acting like we've been conformed to Jesus, like, like we're spiritually right with God. When the Spirit wins out in you rather than the flesh, that's supernatural. Because your tendency is to go with the flesh. How many can raise a hand and say, I agree, my tendency is flesh? Yeah. So when you are able to deny the flesh and walk in the Spirit, that's supernatural. Only God could do that in you. Amen? You can't do it yourself. All you can do is yield your flesh to God and say, Father, I'm not going to let my flesh win. How do you want me to handle these matters with people? 
And all of a sudden, God starts doing a work. I've even had situations where uh, I've wronged someone, and I, and I learned about it through the grapevine. And so I would go to the person, and I would say, hey, listen, brother, I, 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 we need to meet. Uh, I want to make right. If there's a wrong, I want to make it right. And I've had people say, uh, no, we don't need to meet. Uh, I already know what I believe about it. And I'm like, no, I'm not coming to argue with you. We're brothers in Christ. Let's meet and let's reconcile. And they didn't want to do it. I've had that before. Some of you probably had that. You need to do it. When somebody comes to you with an issue that they think that they've committed against you, give them the opportunity to do what's right and obey the Holy Spirit and come and ask forgiveness and make things right in your relationship. Don't withhold that from them. That's not of God. That's of the flesh. We need to be careful. You just need to be real careful. Man, I've got like 12 pages of notes. We might be here a little longer. No, I'm just... Well, let's move to the third thing. And that is, to resolve conflicts biblically, people must be willing to submit to God, to His Word, and to godly leaders. Sadly, when leaders confront people with wrongdoing, all too often the people either react with anger and defensiveness or they just move on to another church or drop out of church altogether. That happens. But thankfully, there are a few victories, such as we see in Nehemiah. These nobles and rulers, they didn't just pull up stakes and say, well, we're taking our money, we're out of here, you build the wall without us. No, no, they didn't do that. They did the right thing. They stayed. They confessed their own sin. They apologized. They gave back to the people, the lands that the people owned. And what that did for the people, can you imagine how that ministered to the people? See, it's, it's one thing to be a leader because you have a title or a name tag or whatever, and people respond to you because of your title or because of the authority that you carry. It's another thing for people to follow you because you have the heart of a servant and you're not above them. And they see you doing the right thing. That's how and why people in the church ought to follow a leader. Not because he has authority, not because he has a microphone, but because he's willing to be an example of what it looks like to seek forgiveness when he's wrong, to do what's right. Some of what I've said in this address is for leaders, and some of it is for people. And it's easy to pick sides and sit here and go, yeah, I wish leaders would do that. Boy, those leaders, those stinking leaders. Or there's others of you sitting here going, yeah, I hope the people hear this. My goodness. You can pick sides. Don't do that. Don't let, don't let the enemy do that. Okay? Look at it for what God is saying to you. If you're a people, receive it from the Lord. If you're a leader, receive it from the Lord. Because all of us are members of his body. At least I hope that we're all members of his body. And that leads to the last thing I want to say, and that is there is never a bad Sunday for someone to hear the gospel 
and respond to the Holy Spirit and surrender. Do you know what an incredible thing it is for God to turn the light on in your heart and open your mind to the truth of the gospel? And that's the only way you can be saved is if God opens the door and for God to call you because he's choosing you and for you to, to, to just recognize that for what it is and say, Father, thank you because all I can see is a wretched sinner that you would love me enough to call me to be your child with all that I've done Thank you, Father. See, that, that alone drives a person when you consider that you're a sinner. And that's the problem with a lot of people not getting saved. They really don't think they're a sinner. Oh, yeah, I've messed up, but I'm, I'm a good person. If you ask most people on the street today, I, I, I challenge you, go, just go, go out and go and stand in front of a busy commercial area and just start talking to people when they walk by. Hey, let me ask you a question. You believe in heaven? Yeah. Are you going there? Yeah. How do you know? Well, I'm, I'm a good person. I, that's the number one answer. You know that that qualifies you, that answer qualifies you for hell? Because you're talking about what you've done, that you're good. The Bible says you're not good. You're the opposite of good. You're evil. The Bible says you're depraved, that there's never a time or a way that you can ever come to God on your own. That's how evil you are. God has to reach out. God has to draw. The scripture says that no man comes to the Father except the Holy Spirit draw him. So maybe that's the problem. If you're here today, do you know that you're evil? Every Christian, by the way, that's here was evil before they were saved. I hope you know that. I hope it wasn't one of these, well, you know, I just heard a guy talk about Jesus and how wonderful Jesus is, and he said it's a free gift, and I love free things, so I accepted Jesus. That man's going to be kindling wood in hell. No, you have to know that you're evil, that you're sinful, that the wages of sin, your sin is death. And then you have to have God turn the light on to show you that, but also that he sent his son, Jesus. We're going to celebrate this Christmas talking about the, the incarnation of Christ, God coming to, to us to save us. Jesus came for one purpose, to die for our sins because we couldn't pay the price. You're not good. God is good. And he provided for you salvation through his son, Jesus. What you've got to do is recognize your sinfulness and repent of it. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. And cry out to God by faith. Father, thank you for revealing to me the truth of the gospel. I receive by faith this marvelous work that you have done through your son, Jesus. I, I receive that. I confess I'm a sinner. I receive. And you, you turn, you, you go the opposite direction. It starts here in the mind. You think differently. You think differently about your life. You're not so good. And you go, but my God is good. 
And he has saved me. He has put on his righteousness on me. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I pray that today, that if someone is here and you have not been convinced, you don't walk in a confidence of salvation, I, I pray today, if, if you're at all feeling conviction about that, that is the Holy Spirit that's putting that conviction on you. Surrender. Be saved. Cry out to God as a sinner. Thank God for what Jesus did for you. It's not real tough. It's not real easy to understand. It's just tough to do. Because you've got to surrender flesh. You've got to just give up and go with what God's doing. It's his free gift. And, and if today somehow God has spoken to you and you've responded to him, you've been saved today, sitting where you are, saying yes to God, admitting that you're a sinner, believing in Jesus as the Son of God, dying for your sins. Listen, that's salvation. You don't have to raise a hand. You don't have to pray some prayer. That's salvation. And we're going to have the altar prayer partners come, gather at the front, and, and elders. And if you would like to just come because you have a, you know, a physical issue going on and you want prayer, they'll pray for you. But if you receive the Lord, let them know that so they can just rejoice with you and pray with you, giving thanks to God, okay? So we're going to close our service with that. I, I also would like to uh, uh, go ahead and call upon um, Marshall, if you would, just because you're kind of in the middle of the room and loud enough for people to hear, if you'd close this service with prayer and then come and respond, okay? Altar ministers come up. We'll minister to those who are here.